1: Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in Religion on the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Understanding Religion, Theories and Methods for Studying Religiously Diverse Societies, written by Paul Hedges and published by University of California Press in 2021, is an innovative book that introduces interdisciplinary theoretical tools for understanding contemporary religiously diverse societies. This book sets out to explore the wide and diverse array of contemporary issues, questions, and critical approaches to the study of religion and examines a variety of theoretical approaches, which includes decolonial, feminist, hermeneutical, and post-structuralist analysis. Dr. Hedges does not shy away from tackling some of the key issues about the study of religion and in considering the plural and religiously diverse societies, including the theological ideas of traditions and the political and social questions that arise for those living aside adherents of other religions. Rather than falling into an essentialist approach, this book's true intent is to help the readers engage in the investigation into the study of religion and to encourage more questions and offer more possibilities and ideas and understanding and studying religions. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important work, how this book serves as a guide in in understanding how to study religions, the various theories and methodologies, and how scholars and students of religion and interreligious studies stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned. And we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today we are privileged to talk with Paul Hedges, the author of Understanding Religion, Theories, Methods for Studying Religiously Diverse Societies. Just to briefly introduce our author today, Paul Hedges is Associate Professor of Interreligious Studies in the Studies in Interreligious Relations in Plural Societies Program at RSIS, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Previously, he was a reader in interreligious studies at the University of Winchester, UK, and has worked at or lectured in other British, Canadian, European, and Chinese universities. He has worked with a range of stakeholder groups outside of academia, including the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Ministry of Community, Culture, and Youth, the Anglican Communion Network for Interfaith Concerns, the Dialogue Society, Netflix, and the BBC. He is the co-editor of Interreligious Studies and Intercultural Theology, editor-in-chief of the occasional paper series Interreligious Relations, and he sits on the editorial board of a number of other journal and book series. He publishes widely in Interreligious Studies, Religious Studies, and Theology, Current research projects include interreligious relations in Singapore, decolonial methodologies and theories, and comparative intercultural, interreligious, and theological hermeneutics. His recent publications include the book titled Religious Hatred, Prejudice, Islamophobia, and Antisemitism in Global Context, which shows how scholarly studies of prejudice, identity formation, and genocide studies can shed light on global examples of religious hatred. So welcome, Dr. Hedges, um, to New Books in Religion. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your new book.
2: Okay, thank you for inviting me. It's very good to be here.
1: Why don't we start by getting to know you more, uh, Dr. Hedges? Um, I was wondering if you could share with us about your background and how you became interested in the field of study, uh, specifically interreligious studies. Please do feel free to also mention any mentors or interlocutors that you might have had along the way.
2: Okay, um, thank you, um, Bing Ho. I mean, it's hard to know perhaps where I should start sort of on, on, on this. Um, as an undergraduate, I studied uh, religious studies and theology for my first degree. Um, And of course, in the UK context where we have secular universities and certainly at the university where I was, um, if I say theology is essentially religious studies about Christianity and religious studies is the other traditions. Um, And my background all into this, I I guess came about through school. Um, Religious education is something in the UK that that we have in school. Um, So from the age of 11, it was sort of one of the courses I was studying. Um, and this, uh, alongside sort of history, was always, if you like, sort of my biggest interest in terms of the subjects. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did for a while sort of think about going off to study um, architecture, but uh, I didn't have the technical drawing skills for that. Um, and actually, initially, I wanted to study religious studies and psychology as a joint honours, but for various reasons, I ended up in this route. Yeah. Um, and. I think particularly my religious education teacher at school, or one of them, David Woof, um, as people at my school may sort of well remember him as our religious education um, teacher, sort of took me through my O-levels and my A-levels, which is like sort of um, age 16, then age 18, so post-university um, courses into this. Now, the interreligious studies side, again, it's something that's always, if you like, sort of interested me. As, as a in my context, in my family, we were brought up sort of as Anglicans. My parents sort of were regular attenders at church. Um, so I, I was brought up, I was initiated, sort of um, baptized, confirmed into the Anglican um, tradition. But I was always interested in in religious sort of diversity. I mean, at my school, some of my best friends um, were still as an atheist, there were Sikhs. I had sort of Muslim friends uh, as, as well. And so, you know, sort of the idea sort of, how and why people sort of see the world in these different ways um, was something that had been with me for a long time. In fact, I came my first awareness, I know goes a long way back. And here I'm going right back to primary school because we had to bring these forms in, in, into school, and there was this box that on, on religion. And I had, you know, my parents obviously written sort of Christian in depth. And as these were being handed in, you know, I noticed like other people had different things written into that box. And I could, as I mean, I'd maybe five or six, and I was thinking, oh. I just assumed everybody, you know, their parents took them to church and they went to Sunday school on the Sunday morning. But other people are filling that box in differently. Now, obviously, I was too young to understand what these other terms sort of meant or, or how it was there. But I said, to some extent, maybe that stayed with me. Um, and I was very fortunate in my undergraduate degree. Um, we did a course. Um, I think I did it in my second year. So it was cool. I I can't remember the exact title, it was a very long title, something like uh, a Christian understanding of other sort of religious traditions or something. Um, And this course had actually never run before, it had been on the books. Um, The person who became my PhD supervisor, Professor Paul Badham, um, had developed a course quite a few years ago, and nobody had ever taken it. Um, And that year I was the only person doing it. So he basically just taught me, well, he didn't particularly teach me. He gave me a list of books and said, go often read these and then come back and give me essays. <laughs> um, so if you like, that, that had sort of been there in, in my interest. And then of course that follows into my PhD, um, which was really, if you like, uh as it sort of turned out, sort of a history of sort of 19th into 20th century sort of Christian missionary thought, but which like with this intention, like you know, how do, if you like, these Western Christians conceptualize the difference they're finding, particularly in India? Um, it was focused very much on the Indian context. So that, yes, is, is really sort of where I, I come from into this um, study.
1: Wow. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity to kind of get to know you better. I think gotcha. one of the great benefits of podcast interviews is that we get to listen to kind of the background story um, to how you know this journey began and kind of to what goes on behind the scenes also as well um, to get an insider scoop, if I may put it that way, and gotcha. understanding the author's uh, thoughts and intent yeah. and also kind of uh, retracing the journey that the author takes in writing the book itself. So I was wondering, do you mind sharing with us how you came to write this unique and extensive book Um, from what I've heard uh, from other uh, uh, outlets as well? This book took several years in the making for you, uh, which really shows how thorough and detailed uh, you want it to be. Um, So if you can, how was uh, was your experience, Mm -hmm. writing experience overall, and what were some of the challenges that you faced And if I also may kind of add another question to that is, um, who were your intended readers and what kind of led you to go on this investigation into understanding and studying uh, religion?
2: Right. Okay. Well, I mean, yes, it it was actually six years of of writing from my first sort of drafts and proposal up to the book finally coming out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, in a sense, I guess that's like two PhDs length. um, And it almost felt like that. Um, When I first started writing, I thought, oh, this is is a textbook. It's going to be fairly easy. I'll have this out in a few years. Mm. Um, But one, as you say, I mean, the scope of it, there's almost 600 pages here. So getting on top of all of that material, some of which was relatively new to me, um, was a huge task. But my particular impetus um, goes back to 2015, and this is when I arrived in Singapore. Um, I mean, I've been teaching religious studies um, in, in the UK for sort of quite some time before that I had been almost 10 years um, at my previous university um, and with sort of a well primarily with one other sort of colleague there we were sort of doing if you like the introduction to uh, religious studies various religions and so i had been thinking for quite some time um, sort of through sort of methodologies and again back to my sort of previous teaching um, career with, with that but Arriving I've been in Singapore, where I am at the moment, is a graduate school. Um, we don't have any religious studies course here, basically um, apart from sort of what I and a couple of sort of colleagues do. And so most of my students are in Asian studies. We have some from international relations, um, some from strategic studies, which is basically war studies. Um, and then the other course we run is IP, international political economy. Um, and so I have these students from very diverse background suddenly coming in and for most of them it's the first course on religion they've ever done and I'm going into sort of aspects of religious sort of studies theory sort of uh, what is religion sort of understanding sort of the uh, the political sort of dynamics of, of how this works sort of post-colonialism which you know again a lot of these students many of them like have come from like a business studies background well what on earth is this about they that you know this is new um, to them so the question that came to me is well how can I make sense if you like, of what I want to get across to them um, in, in a way that is accessible and understandable. Um, and also, of course, bring students from basically ground zero up to sort of postgraduate level at the same time. But, you know, without any technical language, I've kind of got to introduce it like they're, you know, in a sense, like first year students, um, but, but but get them sort of up, up to something sort of higher. So if you like, my first drafts that sort of, uh, writing this, it was actually chapter one, chapter on religion is, is the first one I sort of started laughing and this is something I've been working on for a long time, definitions of religion. I've, I've got publications going back some time um, on this. And it was sort of trying to sort of explain to them if you like to relevant to this kind of quite arcane sort of debates like, you know, do we even know what the term religion is? Does it actually mean anything? So there's this is whole sort of Western heritage. And I think we, you'll maybe ask me about that sort of um, yeah. later on. So, so I won't go into that. But it was trying to sort of make this uh, sort of relevant and meaningful to these students, you know. And this was often like the only course they would do on religion. So, how do they make sense of this in relation to, you know, sort of Asian uh, politics, Asian society, um, sort of political economy, international relations, whatever else they're doing? So, the case study sort of aspect comes into this because that, if you like, gives some real world examples of why the theory matters. Um, but that's sort of really <clears throat> why I said I had nothing, if you like, that I could give to the students. I mean, often in my teaching, class, I haven't really necessarily used textbooks. I mean, if there's a good book out there, uh, I, I will use it. I'm not like an anti-textbook person. But often for these sort of types of courses, there was nothing that, you know, I just couldn't find anything that would fit this bill. So I thought, well, if, if it's not there, there, there's a lack in the field, so simply uh, I will write it. So I said it was written, if you like, partly for the course I teach here, mm-hmm. um, but also I said you know, I've got sort of uh, well going back to sort of 1990 something. I've been teaching sort of um, in, in various sort of ways. So drawing upon that, also thinking like you know what is the course that I would like, if you like, for religious study students sort of to have, and something that would be accessible. I said to undergraduates, um, but has got enough depth that postgraduate students could come in. Um, and use it as well. So that's really where I was uh, going to
1: with this. And thank you for sharing those kind of experiences Mm -hmm. and the journey you took in helping Mm us uh, understand how this book came into fruition. Um, I love the way you put it, you know, if it's not there, you know, why not write it, you know, Mm -hmm. in your case, and that has been the case for you. for our listeners and also um, not readers, future readers as well that have not yet gotten a hold of this book, um, I must say that this book is very uh, comprehensive and diverse. I think you mentioned o- o- nearly 600 pages and 18 chapters and um, it's richly illustrated, filled with uh, numerous little text boxes, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It serves kind of like a form of glossary or a supplement Uh, to the readings um, that you're doing. And it deals with theories, methods, and concepts such as syncretism or phenomenology or power, identity, gender, ritual, dialogue, violence, and secularism. All these which are very neatly organized, if I may put it this way, under three big umbrellas. (laughs) Three big umbrellas. Part one, um, which you have titled What is Religion and How to Approach It? I think um, this is kind of Really, that sets the the foundation of for those that might be approaching religious studies or religion uh, as a as a new beginner or as uh, and for the first time, I think this really helps them to kind of locate uh, understand uh, what is being talked about about religion. Um, The second big umbrella the part two is you deal with theories methodologies and critical debates. Um, this also it, it kinds of uh, deep digs deep deeper into the some of the theories that you would want uh, the students to understand. and also kind of challenges the professors to also think about the various theories outside of the West as well and the methodologies as well. And lastly, the third umbrella, part three is religious diversity in society which um, what I really appreciated not only about this aspect but also as you mentioned the case study is that you take examples a lot um, from outside of the west. Uh, You bring in rich uh, illustrations, uh, worldly illustrations if I may put it, uh, in describing some of what's uh, going on in uh, different religions and different contexts uh, outside of the west. But Uh, kind of before we dive into these three parts, um, I would like to highlight one of the key contributions that you have made and which again, I deeply appreciated. And that is your utilization of case studies to bring theory and method to life for the readers. You mentioned, you briefly mentioned about the case studies, but I still wanted to kind of ask you to talk a little more. And the reason why I really wanted to emphasize this is because each chapter consists of two case studies which if you, if I do my math correctly, there are 36 in total, taking a very big portion in your book and on what you seek to accomplish, I think. So I was wondering if you mind sharing more of your thoughts on these case studies as purpose and goal and how readers should kind of utilize them as well.
2: Okay, yeah, thanks very much. I mean, the case study is not something you normally find within sort of religious studies um, as a discipline. I mean, readers may know it was first, I believe, sort of pioneered in Harvard. I forget if it was the law school or the business school, but, but both of those. And I mean, um, universally, law schools and business schools very heavily sort of utilised case studies. Um, and a case study is essentially like it's a real world example of something. And the idea is it allows students, if like they've got some grasp of the theory. So, as you said, sort of these case studies, they come at the end of the chapters. So the students have sort of led sort of to the theory mm. and you know, they then left, well, okay, I have got some theory, so what? The case study says, well, this is, this is the so what, this is why this is important. Mm. Yeah. Um, so one case study in, in chapter one looks at the question of sort of um, Fallon uh, Gong, yeah. um, which students may be familiar with. It's a, it's a Chinese sort of uh, form of sort of self-cultivation um, it was huge, sort of in the 1990s, sort of 90s, tens of millions of followers. Um, before it was banned by the Chinese Communist Party, and um, they declared it to be what they would term a sheer jiao, or um, sort of an evil cult. Is the way the Chinese government normally translate that that into English. Yeah. So there's, you know, a lot of sort of stuff on, on there. So this question again around, you know, religion well, how do we define what it is? And of course, like religion against cult, against superstition, against magic, and of course, you know, religion is something which is not secular, um, all, all, all comes into this. And you know, this is why I said, this is why these type of debates matter. Mm. It's not simply that sort of scholars sit in ivory towers and think, well, is there such a thing as religion? Is there not such a thing as religion? How do we define it? You know, there they have real world consequences as to how we put this label mm. on something? Yeah. Um, and also, of course, with that, the case study shows there's not a single correct answer to any of this. Um, and again, I mean, just as I'm talking around that sort of case study, if you like most of the Falun Gong supporters, you know, will say, I'm not actually a religion, but of course, as a religion, they would be then protected under sort of like freedom of religion and belief, um, uh, sort of debates and, and different jurisdictions around the world have come to different decisions um, on this in their legal systems. Um, and this again, term sort of self-cultivation technique. Well, well, what does that mean? Does it relate to anything in English? Again, does Ch- religion actually relate to anything in Chinese? Which means a whole other debate within this around sort of questions and sort of translation. Um, so all of these kind things that you know people can think through, and and partly, if you like a case study there's an existential sort of aspect to it. So I often say, you say, put your sort of in, into the context of sort of somebody. So again, if like you're a Falun Gong person, would you want to use the term religion in your context? Why or why not? Mm-hmm. So it's obviously w- what you gain from this? What is not gained from this? Um, now, having said that, I said case studies are not particularly used in religious studies. There is of course, one exemplary example, um, which again is, is, is back to the heart of Diana Heck at, at the pluralism project there. Um, And and they have got a vast number, um, if you like, of uh, sort of interreligious case studies, particularly from the American um, context. So, I mean, there is an example of this, and and I was very fortunate sort of one year to sort of have, uh, um, be it a sort of a teaching sort of masterclass where Diana Eck, This was at the American Academy of Religion one year, basically sort of talked us some sort of faculty through, this is is how I would teach this particular one, um, which was very useful for me. but also I have to admit that my usage comes down to a uh, visiting professor here Abdullah Saeed, mm-hmm. um, he's a professor of Islam at sort of Melbourne um, and kind of he helped sort of set up the program I'm part of sort of here um, and one of sort of his uh, sort of strong recommendations is that we should be teaching through case studies and you know before I arrived in Singapore again you know I hadn't really at least I'd not properly use case studies. I mean, we often say in class, oh, this is a case study, but it's not a proper case study. It's just like an example of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really sort of partly through him that I started really thinking properly through what a case study should look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, as you said, because I was doing it in class, it then naturally came into chapters of this book. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, each chapter needed them. And also, mm-hmm. in fact, to make this a, a pedagogical tool, of course, if there's only one case study, you know, the, teaching commentary, well, actually, I, I don't want to teach that. I don't know about that particular topic. So each one has got two. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, sometimes in my teaching, this is good for me that, you know, I don't have to teach the same thing every year. I can use different mm-hmm. examples mm-hmm. or sometimes use um, both of them or refer to them both. So it's, it's you know, it is a pedagogical sort of um, tool, but, but also I said, yeah, they just make so much sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I've spoken again, particularly here. I said, because I've got students who don't come from a religious studies background. But of course, a first year religious studies student coming in anywhere, they don't normally have any background to it, you know. So, why are we talking about this? So, again, if I like had the case studies, ah, oh, there's actually, you know, an application to this. Um, it, it's not just, you know, some strange thing that, you know, my lecturers have decided to sort of amble on about.
1: Of course. And thank you for sharing that your insights. And I, I was really, um, it was really great to hear some familiar names, uh, scholars <laughs> who kind of influenced you as well and bring. Uh, concept of case studies and, you know, putting that uh, at, e- at the end of each chapter, you know, and if I may add and highlight too, not only you add case studies, but you also add a small bibliography uh, for each mm-hmm. chapters as well, because this not only motivates um, readers to only read what you have provided to also explore more. I think that is your one of your intent for this book. Right? Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciated that aspect as well. And kind of another brief follow-up, and I think you mentioned this uh, this concept as well, but I wanted to ask uh, is regarding your pedagog- pedagogical approach in which you mentioned several, um, such as you aim to bring more insights and voices of non-Western and non-white scholars into the limelight and um, the significance of inter- and multidisciplinary approaches in studying religions. So are there any other pedagogical uh, approaches that you would like to mention or emphasize for our readers? Um, I know you briefly mentioned in the introductory chapter, but uh, could you share with us how your role as a scholar that identifies with interreligious studies kind of also influenced you and your approach as well?
2: Um, Yes, that's that's, that's a good question. I mean, interreligious studies is is a very new term, a very new like sort of field or subfield or whatever it might be. Um, within within the study of religion, um, and I think it's often sort of misunderstood um, that some people think that interreligious studies scholars are basically, if you like, interfaith dialogue practitioners who are trying to sort of pretend to be academics. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, I think, interreligious studies is a very broad field, and I've noticed this. You know, there are there are sort of people who are much more practitioners there who want, if you like, you know, an academic aspect to their practice. There's also scholars, and this is where I've sort of put myself, if you like, who study, if you like, these dynamics of interreligious relations. Mm. And I mentioned it at, at the beginning, if you like, is this, this meeting of worldviews and how people make sense of each other, which has really always been my main sort of intellectual sort of um, excitement. This this is what I am really sort of concerned with. Um, and I certainly think this has sort of influenced the book in quite a few ways. It's of course, um, a lot of sort of uh, texts, you know, you deal with religions, if you like, in discrete blocks. You've got your Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism. Um, and of course, as in religious studies scholar, sort of my concern is, well, actually, these things don't exist in discrete blocks. Throughout history, they've been meeting and influencing each other. There's this sort of continual sort of back and forth. There's lots of grey and messy areas um, where they meet. Um, and of course, I, mean, I don't want to get away from the, you know, if you like to social reality that there are very strong institutions sometime and people live within, at least what they see as very clear borders. But, you know, these are always borders created sort of through human discourse. They don't exist naturally. Mm-hmm. So if you like sort of get into this, this dynamic becomes important in this. Um, but also the book, um, as you've mentioned, sort of my subtitle, Theories and Methods for Study in Religiously Diverse Societies. My focus is on contemporary societies. And of course, around most of the globe, we now live much more consciously in multi-religious societies. I say much more consciously because most of us have always lived in multi-religious societies. And that's often been hidden um, in various ways or not acknowledged.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, you know, how, how do we make sense of, of the world that, that we live in? Um, so, so that's a key part from that. Um, I mean, also perhaps something to pick up pedagogically as well. I make a bit of use of the uh, Argentinian thinker, Paolo um, Freire in the introduction. And he's, again, sort of influenced bits of my thinking through this. So the idea, if you like, of the teacher and students co-learners together Because of course, as teachers discover, you often learn as much from your students as they do from you um, in these encounters. So, I mean, that, I explained, is why I use we throughout the book, you know, to emphasize the fact that, that, that we're learning. And, of course, I said this book was, was a learning experience for me as well. You know, I had to get on top of my game in all sorts of, of fields. And you know, there's a chapter on the cognitive science of religion, which, you know, I kind of knew something about before I started writing this book. But I, I was running some drafts past some colleagues and somebody said, you know, you really need that in there. So, you know the six years, um, was was me sort of reading up on fields which I was really completely ignorant on before I started. So, yeah, I mean, this is, I said, a huge learning experience for me in in writing this book. And again, I hope the students will come to, you know, appreciate that um, as as they read it, that, you know, we're always, always learning. Mm
1: I think I, I recognize we're all learning together in Winto Kento Smith's uh, work as well. I think his approach mm-hmm. to understanding religion is also learning together, you know, having a, a humble approach in mm-hmm. studying religions as well. I think mm-hmm. I was inspired by that in the introductory chapter that as well. Mm-hmm. The first chapter actually on religion that you mentioned. Um, okay. So kind of segueing into our next question, I would like to um, focus on the first part of your book in which you seek to address the questions, you know, what is religion and how to approach it. Um, I especially enjoyed the first chapter in which you venture into questioning the term religion itself, um, exploring how many many scholars have engaged in defining religion and, and the critical problems with the category of religion itself. Um, Now, the responsibility still falls on the readers themselves, um, you know, to decide, you know, what is religion um, and how they wish to understand and define it, or whether we can, you know, still employ the term religion itself. But I was wondering if you can, if you mind expounding on how the term religion is employed throughout your book, too, um, because you lay that foundation in the very first chapter as well. Um, Yes, sort of.
2: Thank you very much for that. I mean, I think in your introduction, you mentioned that this is sort of not a essentialist book. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sort of trying to say, okay, this is, this is my definition of religion or this is what religion is, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think has been apparent in what I've been saying sort of so far that we've got all sorts of questions around sort of translation Mm -hmm. um, that that come into this. And again, sort of the usage of different parties uh, within this. Now, Having said that, if you like this question of uh, the definition of religion, you've mentioned Wilfred Cantwell-Smith, and of course back, was it 62, 64 about, then he wrote The Mean and End of Religion, which if you like was the first serious text to question what that term means. Mm. Um, But from the late sort of 1990s, sort of up till today, there's been sort of a new term, sort of often termed sort of critical religion or critical studies of religion, Mm. um, which has been even sort of more um, forthright in its criticism um, of, of this term. And some scholars, well, I mean, Cantwell Smith himself suggested we get rid of religion and use sort of faith and cumulative tradition, mm-hmm. um, but suggesting that, you know, we completely abandon the term religion and we just talk about sort of culture um, mm-hmm. in, instead. So yes, I mean, this first chapter is laying the groundwork. You know, is this, is this a term that we can even use? You know, is it a viable term? Is it simply, you know, a white Western colonial imposition to make sense of the rest of the world. Um, And well one answer is yes, it it partly is, but then again, so is the rest of the English language. Um, The fact that we're having this interview that I'm speaking to a a Korean in English um, shows if like some of this like neo-colonial hegemony um, Mm -hmm. that is is continuing today. Um, And in this, I don't think that you know religion is a worse word than politics, philosophy, culture, all sorts of other things that, you know, we use to make sense of our world. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of these words have a history. Um, You know, they've all come from somewhere. They've been defined in a particular sort of uh, context, in particular sort of times um, to help us sort of see things. Mm -hmm. So the debate really is like, is religion a useful word that helps us see something or is it sort of a not- Useful word that we should really get rid of. I mean, I say something like perhaps civilization, which you know tends to sort of just uh, be, you know, the people you want to valorize get to be sort of civilized. Those you want, um, sort of don't don't get that uh, don't get that token. Um, and, and I argue that it is a useful word. I mean, partly against some critics who say it's only sort of modern Western people who have developed this term. Um, I mean, I develop a well, it's only in the course of the one chapter, but it's been, uh, like the, the areas that we term religion have been seen and related to each other throughout history in various ways. So in like the, the Chinese or sort of East Asian sort of context, you know, um, what we would call the Buddhists, the Taoists, the Confucians, have, have been sort of in debate in each other for centuries. When Christians arrived, they came and debated with them as well. Um, other groups, again, have often sort of fitted into that matrix Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Ministry of Rights in sort of medieval China, you know, th- this this was who they were looking after. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in Islam, the notion of sort of the people of the book and, and Zimmi. you know, this mm-hmm. obviously originally um, the Christians, the Jews, the Sabians, Zoroastrians get put in mm-hmm. um, as the Muslim armies go out, sort of Buddhists and Hindus sort of come within this sort of matrix uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of places historically, you know, it's not just modern Western who have dumped all of this into a box, you know, is making sense of something uh, much bigger. And I used the idea of sort of a mid 20th century linguist called Walter Galley, spoke about essentially contested concepts. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, there's lots of words we can't define them, you know, but we are kind of better off sort of having these terms. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course there there are lots of problems with with translation. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you said, I mean, at the end of that chapter, I don't say, okay, Mm -hmm. I've now established that we can use religion. I say, it's up to you as the reader. I say, this is how I'm going to keep using this term. because I think it's something that gets us there. Um, And of course, if we look at sort of the critics of, you know, the term religion itself, um, they they keep coming up with something else to get in its place. Um, So, you know, one scholar suggested, like, we use sacred, which is an even more problematic term, I think, than anything else. I mean, culture as well you know, culture as we use it today is basically a 19th sort of century sort of kind of colonial sort of um, sort of historical sort of term, which is, is just as invested in sort of power dynamics as religion. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think we solved the problem by saying, get rid of this word. And we then sort of, I said, lose something and then people are trying to do something else. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Jay Smith sort of famously said, well, there's religious, but there's no religion. And I mean, you know, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> it, 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 you know, when you sort of start to analyze it, it doesn't make sense. You know, the things that we've labeled as religious, well, as a noun form, mm-hmm. how would you speak about that? Well, religion. So, yeah, so I argue for its usage. Um, and then I said, it's employed through the book, but I said always with this very critical sense mm-hmm. that every time we use it, we lose something. There are things we don't see. So, you know, throughout the book, I come back to these sort of other questions. Well, what if we used a different term Mm. What if we didn't see this as religion, then how would that affect this?
1: yeah. Wow. Thank you for that um, insight. I mean, it really does provide our listeners and our readers later on um, how you employ that. Again, as I'm re- if I may repeat myself, it's not an essentialist uh, uh, approach, but uh, keep on kind of questioning what religion is and, and it kind of challenge the readers themselves to think about what religion means to them as well in, in terms of the word itself and to think about how it's been debated uh, over time as well. Another great gem, if I may add, was um, I was able to kind of locate in the first part of your book uh, is the importance of reflexivity for students and scholars of religion to be kind of reflexive practitioners and to be aware of the cultural and linguistic baggage and prejudice which we all carry with us. So in a way, it is it's kind of being in a, a state of reflexivity. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of unpack this a little more on what it means to be reflexive practitioners and i know this kind of stems from the previous discussion of phenomenology and dynamics of the insider outsider debate so if you want to please feel free to elaborate more on that as well but yeah i was wondering if you can unpack a little more on what you meant by reflexive practitioners
2: Okay, yeah, thanks. I, I, I can see your questions are sort of working their way through the book. We've done chapter one, now into chapter two.
1: Uh, yes,
2: um, yeah. Yes. Uh, within this, yes, now, I mean, this, as a notion, I mean, I'll have to invoke sort of uh, Professor Gavin Flood. He was one of my uh, supervisors, tutors when I was an undergraduate, um, actually um, ended up to my... Uh, Postgraduate and, and also being the internal examiner of my PhD, because I, I stayed in the same university at Lampeter in Wales, mm. um, all the way through my studies. Um, and back, I think it was 1999, he wrote a book beyond phenomenology. Mm. Um, and I said this was perhaps a time when I said, sort of this idea of like of, of critically looking at your own use of language, your own terms, was not a big thing in the study of religion, particularly. Um, and his book was one of the first books to really sort of, you know, um, step up and say, well, you know, there's this problematic heritage behind our sort of um, discipline, and, and so how are we going to sort of think around this? So, I mean, he's always in the back of my mind when I think and come onto this term, um, and it comes back. I said partly this question of, of religion: of what do we see, what don't we see, when we think about sort of the world through our own eyes through our own sort of lenses. Um, and of course, as you said, sort of phenomenology comes into this, This, of course sort of through the 20th century from um, figures like sort of uh, Rudolf, sort of Otto, sort of Mathieu Eliade, um, uh, Ninian Smart, sort of uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, sort of phenomenology was the bedrock of the study of religion, this idea like, you know, we go out and, and, and we see an experienced phenomena out there, mm-hmm. um, seen to its essence. Um, and come and interpret this. And this growing sort of awareness, if you like, through various strands, through sort of feminist theory, sort of post-structural slash post-modernism, whatever that may mean, um, and also sort of post-colonial theory that, you know, that what you're seeing is from one particular perspective. And if you look from elsewhere, um, you see something else. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, I mean, coming back to another point that you raised earlier that this like you said it's a multi-disciplinary and interdisciplinary book mm-hmm. that if the phenomenon we're looking at is is, is quite sort of diverse you know mm-hmm. in a sense you know we've got different sort of lenses in to look at something now some people may say well actually that assumes there's this thing down in, in, in the center in the first place that we're looking at from all these different perspectives um, which may or may not be there mm-hmm. um, but of course you know that's also part of these different sort of perspectives you know am I sure that I'm getting closer to understanding this thing or am I simply sort of persisted in in various ways of misunderstanding? But at least if you like having these different perspectives will help me if you like to see my flaws, to see sort of my my blind spots. Mm -hmm. Um, I also draw in here from um, Hans-George Gadamer sort of Hermeneutical sort of philosophy and his notion of prejudices, Mm -hmm. uh, which I always find sort of very interesting because, of course, normally we think about sort of prejudice as sort of this bad thing. It's this thing that helps us or, or, you know, uh, is our sort of misinterpretation of the world. Mm -hmm. But he makes the argument that, of course, if we don't have inbuilt presuppositions, Mm -hmm. we can't understand anything. So in a sense, prejudice is good Mm -hmm. in the sense that it's, our presupposition, and only with presuppositions can we understand anything else. Mm. So, we have, if you like, to come to the world with prejudices. Now, of course, they can be prejudices which help us gain new insights, or they can be prejudices that stop us from getting insights. So, he talked about sort of positive and negative yeah. um, forms of prejudice. But if you like, having this hermeneutical insight, and again, I'm not sure some of the readers may not be familiar hermeneutics is basically the posh academic terms for interpretation right. how we make sense of the world mm-hmm. um, if you like but having like this, this hermeneutical sort of mindset you know to question sort of our ourselves mm-hmm. um, is in many ways I think you know the basis of what a lot of good academic study is about mm-hmm. you know I've come to this conclusion but that because I've looked from here if I started from somewhere else I, I would see something else so always being open um, to, to new insights, new ways of seeing um, is what I think this is primarily about.
1: Mm. Wow. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, if we were actually going to go chapter by chapter, I think we'll <laughs> we'll take over several hours to go yeah. through <laughs> the whole book. But if I may uh, just choose one more um, kind of highlight from mm-hmm. part uh, one, the first umbrella of your book. Um, and I think you've you've tackled this so well, um, the loaded term, uh, you know, as we put it as syncretism. Um, I just wanted to quickly mention how for this chapter, your case study on the Mexican-American Catholic Christianity was very fascinating for me, especially as you give the readers the opportunity to question whether Our Lady of Guadalupe is syncretic or not, you know? Um, you, you, you put some questions at the end of the case studies as well. But one thing I did uh, want to kind of draw out in this discussion on syncretism was how you bring some theory on hybridity into our attention. Um, So do you mind explaining more on some of the theory on hybridity, its implications, and how it has has become a key word in post-colonial discourse as well?
2: Uh, Okay, thanks. Well, actually, first I'll say I'm I'm interested you bring up this example of Our Lady of Quite a loop because right. I actually had the, the book launch last uh, yes. week, and I had four scholars in there with that, and two of them both mentioned the same case study um, as something that sort of fascinated them. Um, it's actually one I don't use in teaching myself, um, oh. so maybe may, may, maybe I should do. And I think it's because I'm in an Asian studies sort of program, and therefore I've got the uh, sort of the Asian context one. This, course, is in American, and so we don't 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 use it. Um, but yes, um absolutely the term a hybrid now, I guess sort of most typically it's associated with homi Baba and, and his sort of work on this, mm-hmm. um but there's also sort of questions um around its usage in the sort of the uh, the writing sort of culture um sort of program in that now, I Personally, I'm not entirely sold on the term "hybrid" for various reasons. Um, and in the book, I mean, I use syncretism as my default. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talk about it, this syncretism, fusion, sort of hybrid, um, and and I suggest to some extent, you know, while some scholars, you know, want to use one and say, "Oh, this word is much better than everything else," mm-hmm. you know, again, back to my point. Well, why do you think that word is better? And it's normally because you're hanging negative connotations on the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, But one time I was at a uh, a, a seminar and the scholar, I forget where he came from, but somebody had used the term hybrid and he sort of got up and from his uh, context, it may have been in the uh, um, Jamaica or Bahamas or sort of somewhere, and said, actually, you know, I would never use that word because in my context, a hybrid, of course, goes back to its sort of biological usage. It's like a term for half-caste. You know this is a pejorative term against mm. those people who are mixed race mm. um so again i said some post-colonial scholars yes as you said have taken this up and said it's a more positive term but again in other if you like another sort of post-colonial context it's, it's a negative
0: yeah.
2: term and i said there was a lot of sort of back history there mm-hmm. but i think this is true of all language and part of what I want to do is get away from this focus. You'd like to data good words and bad words. Yes. What's important is how we use um, these words. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I kind of answered your question about sort of why sort of hybridity um, is, is there, but I said partly I want to talk about like the very naturalness of these terms. And of course the fact that some of the, the negative stuff, if you like, there's a, there's a backflow, if you like some sort of theology, Into religious studies where sort of particularly sort of uh, a Western Christian tradition assumes that syncretism is something bad. And because of the way sort of religious studies develops from this sort of Western Christian background, syncretism Mm -hmm. is often sort of like, you know, it's negative meaning for sort of religious studies scholars. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I partly use syncretism, if you like, to to rehabilitate it. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with this word. In fact, you know, we should embrace it. it. It's talking about something very normal and very natural
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, within these encounters.
1: Yeah, uh, just thinking out on the top of my head, um, recently I was able to read Michael Pye's book um, and he talks about also uh, syncretism and his approach is kind of, um, kind of, Um, moving away from uh, the loaded um, packages that, you know, syncretism has brought from Christian studies and also um, such as, you know, uh, it has been looked at in a negative way. So I think I think that's that's kind of an approach that you've have also took it in this chapter and um, by bringing the theory of on hybridity and other discourses as well you you've expanded our knowledge about understanding how syncretism is uh, kind of understood in various uh, approaches as well, so thank you for for that answer and now. Shifting our attention to the second part of your book, um, you take a deep dive into the theories, methodologies, and critical debates in the study of religion. Um, Again, this second part takes a a rather significant portion uh, of your book. There are nine chapters in which you cover a range of issues such as history, power, identity, um, colonialism, as you mentioned, cognitive science of religion, material religion, gender, um comparative methodologies and even rituals as well but just to choose a few of them i would like to direct my first question for the second part on this issue of identity um, which has i think been a very trendy topic especially within the context of southeast asia we see a lot of books on identity and belonging and and so forth And, and an important theory that you touch upon in exploring religion is the social identity theory but So for our listeners who might be kind of unfamiliar to this theory, do you mind explaining more on what it entails um, and the role of identity in out-group and in-group identification as well? I think this will kind of help uh, place a good foundation for those that investigate issues regarding the dynamics of identity and conflict as well, so.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you've brought this up. I think social identity theory is an incredibly powerful tool mm-hmm. um, for understanding all forms of sort of human group dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, if I can just step back behind this question, it's I don't know if it's uh, by accident, but I actually sort of came to focus on this mm-hmm. because I was doing another edited uh, book several years back. Um, And I had a chapter on identity for that. And the author for that chapter sort of pulled out sort of shortly before we were sort of going to publication, I didn't get the chapter. So, you know, as the editor, I thought, okay, uh, I'm gonna have to write this chapter on identity myself. So I uh, went into sort of my my research, like what are the various theories on identity out there. And I probably feel like some sort of um, philosophical sort of studies out of sort of other forms of idea. Um, and in my writing, of course, I was drawing from sort of the sociology, sort of sociolinguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came across social identity theory. And as I was sort of reading this, I thought, this is so much better than any other theory on identity I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's clear language, which lots of other things don't do around identity. And it helps to explain the dynamics that to, to we're understanding. Um, and of course, I said, with my interest in inter sort of relations you know again this immediately became apparent to me how this related to that mm-hmm. if you like did the, the, the dynamics across well, either inter-religious borders or intra-religious borders if you like this social identity theory really helps us sort of come to terms with that mm-hmm. now i mean at base it's a very simple sort of concept like the in-group or the out group that either you know you're one of my group which you know if i decide to identify you know a, as a as a Baha'i or something, you know, the Baha'is are my in group, and those people sort of over there, the Zoroastrians, they're the out group. Um, but of course, this is much more complex because we never have singular identities. So, you know, if I'm a, a female Baha'i lawyer, I may have more in common, if you like, with that, you know, the, the, the female Zoroastrian sort of lawyer than I've got, you know, with the mayor sort of um, Baha'i uh, sort of anchor or whatever it might be. So, you know, these identity formations are always sort of fluid and they're moving. And so this sort of helps us sort of come to terms with this sort of way we create these in and group and out groups. And within this sort of what's often called identity sort of salience, mm-hmm. um, which can be about sort of how, uh, if you like, you know, particular sort of parts of our identity sort of come to the forefront at particular times, at so particular times, of sort of conflict, particular mm-hmm. identities sort of may be highlighted for us. And of course, an identity is associated with actions as well. Mm-hmm. So the actions around that. So it helps to explain sort of um, an awful lot. And again, theories of sort of other than, sort mm-hmm. of how we push other people out. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, talking about sort of this physical also. so, the identity theory, the chapter on uh, diversity in the third section, yes. I come back and revisit sort of identity theory, you know, well, partly because there's a lot more than I can say about it in one chapter. So yeah. it comes in there as well. Yeah. But also, of course, to show that, you know, we only understand diversity, if you like, through thinking through these kind of dynamics. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's been an extremely sort of, like I said, important sort of part of my work for, for several years mm. now. And I see it as, yes, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the most important chapter in the book. There's lots of chapters that are very important. But I said, yeah. if you want to understand human social dynamics, then this, I think, is one of those theories you really need to look at.
1: And I see in a number of pages that you returning returning uh, to this section, to, to this chapter of the book, um, because uh, there's a lot of connection. Nothing is uh, set in... Sto- uh, nothing is like uh, there's no boundaries uh within chapters but you also you know go back and forth in a way you know kind of complement each other and supplement uh, each other uh, throughout the book itself so I think that's a great way to kind of understand um, this I- identity issues as well in a very different lens um, in other chapters as well so thank you for that um now in considering your pedagogical approach and in discussing the study of religion, I think it is kind of imperative that we address how colonialism, Orientalism and decolonization and post-colonial theory all affect how we understand and study religion, especially as how we view religion today. um, If I may quote in your own words is inseparable uh, from the history of Western colonialism. Um, You have done this tremendously well in your chapter on colonialism and um, especially as you explain in detail some of the terminologies that might be confusing uh, for some and how you delineate um, some of the key concepts uh, that pertains to colonialism, um, such as Orientalism, Post-Colonialism, and the leading scholars um, in this discussion, like Spivak, uh, Mignolo, and Homi Baba, as you mentioned. Um, as you have briefly discussed in the last part of this chapter. I was curious on your thoughts on the importance of decolonizing the curriculum. I think this has been a very um, hot topic as well. Um, It's continuing uh, to gain uh, more, more and more interest and as you have emphasized over and over throughout not only this chapter but this book that decolonization is an ongoing process and it's an ongoing work. So if I may ask what were some of the postcolonial theories and theorists that have influenced you and your own work? And kind of a second part to that question is, um, as you you mentioned, you're currently uh, located in Singapore in Southeast Asia and currently teaching there. And do you mind sharing some of your own work in decolonizing the curriculum? What are some of the difficulties or challenges that you have faced and what is the message that you'd like to invite the readers to kind of think about um, uh, in this aspect as well. Okay,
2: um, thank you, Bang Ho. I mean, yeah, uh, that that's a very big sort it of set is. of questions um, <laughs> it is. there. Um, I'll start off perhaps talking about decolonizing the curriculum. And mm. again, I'll step back here um, maybe 10 or years ago to when I was working in the UK. Mm. Now, one of the things that the university decided wanted us to do was sort of to, to globalize its curriculum. Um, and, you know, they looked around various sort of departments there. And obviously in some ways, religious studies does an incredibly good job on this. Because of course, if you teach Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, you're you're bringing in lots of global contexts. So we, if you like, ticked all of the boxes that they wanted us to do, you know, I mean, it wasn't called decolonizing the curriculum, I think it was a globalization um, thing. And certainly sort of back then again, sort of 10 years in my teaching, if I think about perhaps my courses on um, uh, sort of Buddhism or something as one of the the courses I I need to teach for a while, um, I would, you know, I had the 12 sort of weeks of syllabus, and it would cover the usual sort of range of things. And somewhere along that, I would have, you know, my course on, you know, sort of Orientalism and sort of Buddhism, how this would fit in. And I'd explain, if you like, sort of how uh, the British Nococlonists had come in and sort of understood this. And, you know, at the time I thought, okay, you know, I've done my decolonization sort of bit in, into this. Mm-hmm. But of course there were 11 weeks where I basically, reading Western theorists mainly about sort of Buddhism and, and looking at this lens. Mm. And then one week where we said actually there's a more complicated sort of picture here. And over my sort of time of thinking about this, I mean, I'm not just saying actually from 10 years ago, but from certainly sort of through my PhD onwards, it's been a sort of question that has come up in my mind. Um, because I said, my PhD was looking at sort of really 19th century, 20th century sort of Western Christian attitudes towards sort of um, Hinduism and other traditions um, and of course going back to the 19th century, of course you then had Indian Christian thinkers who were coming up and challenging you know what they might call the Latin captivity of the church mm-hmm. um, and so if you like my first thoughts on this was actually coming from my study of theology than religious studies mm-hmm. you know if to some extent you know this has been something that's been alive in theological churches um, for theologians in into in the churches for far longer than it has for religious studies scholars. Now, I'm not trying to say that like theology is a decolonized discipline, it very clearly isn't. Everyone is still reading Karl Barth, for some reason I don't understand. Sorry, Karl Barth fans, but (laughs) (laughs) um, that's part of this. But if you like, there's, I think that there's, at least for myself, there's a much sort of greater depth of post-colonial decolonization scholarship on the theology side and the religious studies side. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I said my, uh, PhD it was sort of history of religions, I finished 1999, um, and that was the year that Richard King's book came out, Orientalism and Religion, which like was a foundational work for the study of religion, like this is an issue. Mm. Um, but of course it came out basically just as I was just I, I only sort of read it after I, I think after I'd actually sort of submitted my, my, my thesis, I didn't even like have the tools Um, in my thesis, to really bring up these, you know, it was there kind of like as implicit sort of background question and some of this was there, but I didn't really have the tools to do it. Um, So again, after reading that, and again sort of through sort of my, perhaps the theology studies, this has become sort of something that's um, haunted sort of my sort of work since then. Um, And I said, it's been an ongoing process of understanding sort of how this comes in. Um, And I said, this book in a sense is, part of to say what I've got to at the moment is part of that sort of journey that it's not just about having one chapter on colonialism you said yes I've got the post-colonialism decolonial chapter in here but it's something that spreads all the way through the book yeah. so all the way if you like you know non-western thinkers are there mm. in every single chapter so again it's not just like you know you teach your course and there's the one week where we do this
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's got to work all the way through the syllabus okay. you've got to think well who are the non-western thinkers who have sort of contributed to this sort of ob- objective study and how does that affect the way that we think about it? Mm-hmm. So whether it's gender, whether it's religion, whether it's secularism, you know, uh, all of these chapters, you have to have that, if you like, sort of that, the decolonial sort of lens, thinking through this, sort of coming out and helping to explore um, this. So that, I said, is perhaps where I come from like in decolonizing the... Curriculum, and it's a constant matter of study in my teaching here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, of course, most of the theorists remain sort of Western theorists, mm-hmm. and even most of the sort of non-Western theorists we look at, they're teaching or based in sort of Western universities, either in the UK or USA. So, and, and Habib Barba we've mentioned is there. Um, Edward Said was in Columbia. Um, Spivak is also sort of in the US and, and so on um, and, and so forth. So there is there is this sort of, you know, complicity almost in some post-decolonial sort of scholarship in the problem. But of course, if it wasn't complicit, then it wouldn't have a voice mm-hmm. as well. So, so that, that becomes part um, of this dynamic. So basically, like, what I hope is making sort of more, if you like, sort of non-Western, non-mainstream, uh, part of the discussion is something I've tried to do um, in this book. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in the local context here, um, Said Farid Alatus has sort of uh, been somebody I've employed, and of course his father Said Hussein Alatus, his notion of the captive mind um, comes into the book within this. I mean, of course, others like Walter Mignolo, um, influential, uh, and Particularly, I mean, out of him, the way he drew something I've used on in quite a few places. So in chapter 18, sort of the chapter on sort of politics, Mm -hmm. I talk about sort of the colonial sort of wound colonial sort of difference. And this is out of Partha Chatterjee and um, Gloria and Anseldjua. So, I mean, lots of figures have influenced my thinking through this. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also a very influential uh, well event for, for my thinking about how this was going to sort of feed into this book. Um, we had a decolonial sort of um, study group here um, where I said, yes, Said Faridalatus was here, Bico Agazino, who's an African-American sort of legal scholar, mm-hmm. um, as it was set up sort of primarily from a criminology background, but across the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, and some thinking out of that. Um, and, and a fantastic paper by a colleague here, Leon Musavi, who's a criminologist. Mm-hmm. Um, which I would recommend people to read. It's basically sort of about the kind of taming of decolonization of mm-hmm. how it sort of becomes like a tick box exercise for universities. And, and he's done a fantastic article, um, which is referenced in the book on, on that. So, yes, lots of stuff has influenced my thinking mm-hmm. um, on this. But as I said, I mean, it is an ongoing process. Yeah. Because, of course, there's so many perspectives that we could bring in. Mm -hmm. I mean, something I realise I don't know enough about is indigenous traditions. So, yeah, I've brought in like sort of Buddhist thinkers and Muslim thinkers and sort of African thinkers. uh, But I mean, I'm not, as I say, with indigenous traditions as I could be. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, Korean traditions, because many Korean scholars simply aren't getting translated into English. So where do they get um, within this? Um, And also, again, sort of thinking about this, again, we talk sort of, universally of, of the West. But of course, after Mercia Eliade, like as Yugoslavian sort of thinker, you know, most figures from Eastern Europe, scholars of religion from there, you know, they're not part of the the global sort of Anglo sort of American sort of English language sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. But we, so we also feel like, you know, see these um, groups from what we might see as the West, but who are not sort of part of this global conversation in quite the same way. So, you know, we can definitely include all of these voices. So it's always like an ongoing thing about, you know, back to my point, like, what do we not see it? Um, always becomes a question. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for that answer. And once again, thank you for highlighting some of the names um, that our listeners and also our readers will encounter throughout the book. As you mentioned, it's not only in this chapter, but it's throughout the chapters that you uh, constantly highlight uh, their works and their thought as well. So thank you for that. Um. Uh, it, kind of a last um, highlight of uh, the second part is um, and which I would like to discuss is the chapter on uh, gender. Um, again, this is another uh, popular rising um, uh, constantly rising uh, topic, but you talk about the positionality of women and sexuality in various religious traditions that have evolved over time, um, starting from the Greeks and Christians and and so forth. Um, What I found especially fascinating was how um, feminism and gender constructionism are often identified as having three waves. I think that's exactly how you phrased it. Um, And I was wondering if you can, for our uh, listeners as well, say more on uh, kind of these three waves, just briefly, it's fine as well. But for our readers, uh, listeners to have a taste of uh, what um, this chapter entails, uh, especially with its connectedness to religious traditions as well.
2: I uh, Okay. Uh, thank you. P.S. I said, I, I use the three waves notion. There are some scholars now who say we should speak of four mm-hmm. waves, but this remains sort of, uh, I think it's a of the mainstream. So I, I kept with three waves for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Now it's connection to religion. Of course, a lot of this it develops within sort of the West. So firstly sort of um, Northwestern Europe, then spilling into America um, as well. But very briefly, the first wave is what we would associate with what we might call sort of like the European Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, so there's this notion of sort of um, of, of human freedom and individuality. Mm-hmm. And so it positions um, women, um, uh, sort of Mary Wollstonecraft, as an important sort of figure within this. Mm-hmm. If you like, that, women are equally rational beings alongside sort of men. And therefore, if freedom is associated with our rationality, then we can have this freedom sort of alongside men. Men and women should be equal, um, and of course, it pushes for voting rights. And of course, late sort of nineteenth, early twentieth century, many countries sort of give voting rights for women. So, in some sense, you know, it's it's a success um, in these terms. Uh, now, as it then sort of uh, develops, it comes if you like into sort of the second wave, which I said is more we might associate with perhaps in a more militant sort of feminines and 19 sort of 70s, um, figures like sort of Jermaine, sort of Greer, um, and, and, and others who, well not Jermaine Greer herself, but were sometimes perhaps sort of slightly sort of anti-male uh, um, in, in their way of seeing or like patriarchy is the problem. If men weren't in charge, women were in charge, um, we would have a better world. And sort of religiously, I mean, particularly, um, we could associate something like Mary Daly, the American feminist sort of um, theologian. they like, if if the male is, yes, if God is male, then the male is God. And so her sort of very strong critique um, against sort of uh, Christianity within that. Um, At the same time, of course, sort of not all feminism is so, um, if you like, strident. And Mary's, uh, so not Mary, uh, Rosemary Radford Rafe will be another sort of like figure we might associate um, with this sort of second wave um, in this. So we get these figures out. Um, Of course, the first wave I should perhaps have mentioned, figures like um, Stanton, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I think the Women's Bible um, came out, so sort of telling women's stories um, as part of this. But what both of these sort of movements have in common is that they're based if you like very much in white, Western, middle-class women's views of the world. Um, And the third wave is partly like a reaction against Mm. this, um, that say that there are other ways of being a woman, other sort of of, ideas as to what sort of femininity or just a female sort of may be. And of course, within this also questions around sort of the the deconstruction of this. so we could sort of look particularly at Judith Butler, very sort of influential um, in deconstructing sort of like, well, actually there is no male and female, sort of gender as a performance yeah. um, in, in her idea. So she becomes part of this, mm. um, but also if you like a sense in other parts, you know, it's not sort of men are the problem, you know, men are not necessarily enemies um, in, in, in this system, but you know, there are perhaps sort of uh, systems at work and well, I perhaps associate with sort of second wave feminine. Um, Elizabeth Schussler, I think it's her term sort of hierarchy, where she, you know, suggests like forms of domination, that the rulership of, of the lord, of the rulers, is the problem often sort of met. Because of course, you can get bad female leaders. Um, as I come from the UK, um, maybe Margaret Thatcher would be my sort of go-to example sort of here of, of, of a woman who can be like a... Uh, a militist sort of leader who sort of oppresses the poor and everything else, you know, putting women in power does not doesn't solve um, the world's problems. Um, so it addresses a great sort of, this third wave sort of transgender issues as well. Um, and so we perhaps get sort of queer theology coming out of this. Um, Elizabeth Stewart, sort of very influential on, on me. She was my boss for a while um, at, at, at Winchester, but also uh, Carter Haywood. Um, in the US, within this stream. Um, and also, again, again, an awareness, if you like, of other sort of ways of looking at this. So, uh, if you like, uh, sort of black women as, as part of this, um, you get sort of, again, sort of Asian sort of women's points of view, um, you get sort of Muslim sort of forms of, of feminism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this sort of comes back to this. And again, something I mentioned perhaps um, in some of the chapters is around sort of the hijab. There's again like traditional forms of feminism like you know yeah. the hijab is uh, is something that men use to oppress women and therefore you know the traditional feminist point of view is let's get rid of this mm-hmm. but of course you have muslim feminists who want to reclaim this yeah and if you like it argues the way the western world has gone you know mm-hmm. women will sort of unclothe and disrobe, but they're there for the male display mm-hmm. so how do I get somebody to look at me as a person? often simply as as a body as a sex object Mm -hmm. so covering up Mm -hmm. is actually a feminist thing Um, and of course as a woman if you want to sort of you know associate yourself with your religion then wearing a hijab could be one way to do this Mm -hmm. so if like sort of female agency Mm -hmm. um, comes out you know if you like putting a hijab on can be part of sort of female agency within her religion it's not necessarily enforced upon her by males now of course if you're in the middle of Afghanistan the Taliban it's a different situation Mm -hmm. um, from you know, if you're sort of a, a middle-class sort of woman in uh, the middle of sort of Detroit or something, you know, you've got a very different dynamic right. taking place. So always sort of context is, is, is part of that. So I, I think hopefully I've tied these two yes. bits in for you there.
1: To... Yeah, I um, mean, thank you for that uh, comprehensive mm-hmm. um, answer and kind of, um... For our listeners, it, um, <laughs> our, our author not only provides um, our explanation on the three ways, but also how this forms later on. He builds upon um, uh, these understandings, and I think there's other issues uh, within uh, gender uh, that you seek to address as well. So mm-hmm. I hope that our our listeners are are encouraged to to uh, to look into the book as well on this chapters as well. Now, um, segueing into the final chapter, a final uh, part of your book, part three, um, you address issues that focuses on religious diversity and society. And uh, one particular chapter I would like to discuss in this part before I guess we head into our final question is a chapter on interreligious dialogue. And for me, um, following your work, your previous works, uh, you've dealt with uh, uh, quite a bit about on this topic as well. Um, and the critical insight on the discourse surrounding interreligious dialogue. Um, Again, for our listeners that might not be as familiar to the discourses on interreligious dialogue, I was wondering if you could provide some insights uh, to the interreligious dialogue movement. Um, How has interreligious dialogue been defined and described, and why are people involved in um, interreligious dialogue? if I may ask, what are some of his general critiques of interreligious dialogue?
2: Right. okay, mm-hmm. thanks. I mean, again, because this if like, this chapter takes place within a religious studies textbook, mm-hmm. it's not a sort of a promotion of dialogue or a how-to text yes. um, or, or on dialogue. Um, actually, the original draft of this chapter, um, I, I wrote in which my publishers made me remove. The they said people may not get to joke. I said because the way some religious studies look at dialogue they must they might just tear this you know chapter straight out of the book before even reading it oh, <laughs> and okay. I thought they didn't want too much damage to the book <laughs> um but you know I think it is a point because if fact like, many religious studies conferences that I attend sort of nowadays like in divide up under it you know like we're religious studies sort of theology thing and there's also this thing about you know this will not be used to promote sort of interfaith sort of understanding and all of this which you see like is a inside a practitioner kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So this chapter, if you like, it is the academic sort of study and critique Mm -hmm. um, of dialogue taking place here. Now, within that, of course, as you said, you know, yep, you explore the history of how it happened. You analyze what goes on. And also, of course, you look at the, uh, you know, the problems um, with it in various ways. Um, Now, there's far more perhaps than I can sort of discuss. Mm Um, But the general sort of um, background, if you like, as it's normally seen today, is it goes back to 1893, Mm -hmm. which is a very precise date. Um, But there was a huge sort of um, World Trade Fair taking place in Chicago. um, And a couple of people involved in that uh, wanted to sort of have, if you like, a more humanistic Sort of exhibition and this involved, if you like, this great exhibition of the world's religions as they saw it. Yes. Um, and it's seen as to the beginning of the, of the sort of if you like a dialogue movement or multi faith movement, because really, as far as we can make out, for the first time in human history, mm. representatives of many different traditions were brought together, not all religions, despite what the people said, but many religions were brought together and they were given equal time to talk about. And if I promote their tradition, but with the idea today, it wouldn't be sort of undue coercion. It wasn't going to be a debate. People weren't arguing with each other like who was right, who was wrong. Mm -hmm. Each would sort of come forward and on their platform sort of express their views freely. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, I said that makes it sound very idealistic. It was far from idealistic. Um, The people found in it, they were Christian ministers and their idea was that basically once Christianity is seen alongside his other religions, everyone will see that Christianity is right. Um, there was also a whole racialized aspect of this, and they were quite sort of racist as well um, in, in their presuppositions. Um, but that didn't happen. I mean two of the sort of most prominent speakers, um, Vivi Kananda, a young sort of charismatic handsome sort of Hindu, basically sort of stole the stage mm-hmm. um, and then went on to sort of lecture tours around the USA and Europe and elsewhere. Um, and if you like started the first sort of Hindu missions to the West, if I can put it in those terms. Mm. Um, and again, sort of some other Buddhist speakers also extremely sort of um, influential and, and it helped spread sort of Buddhist teaching mm. um, across sort of America and Europe as well. But if you like it provided something of an inspiration for people, so this kind of sort of model, mm. then if you like sort of um, moves us to where we are today um, in some ways in terms of sort of, um, sort of dialogue. Now I, I've mentioned sort of critiques of, of that first event. I mean, one thing notable, there were no sort of indigenous traditions so sort of Native Americans sort of weren't included. Um, and of course, they still often not included in the dialogue events. What's called the Parliament of the World Religions now, and from 1993, this has been sort of set up, um, indigenous traditions have been included in this. but. Dialogue um, is something which isn't just about sort of including people to talk, it's also about excluding them. Like, who am I going to talk to? Who am I not going to talk right. to? Mm. Um, and and all sorts of power dynamics come into this. So, you know, if we look at like sort of Christians, have you got Catholics in there? Have you got Protestants in there? Right. What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. And of course the question, are they even Christians in the first place?
0: Right.
2: Um, and very often, I mean, they're not even allowed through the door because the other mm. Christians, if you let these people in, then we walk out. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know if you know they're the majority groups—the Catholics and Protestants—and so if they walk out, then you lose credibility. So you have to exclude. Um, again, you see similar sort of dynamics working elsewhere. Um, in, in in Buddhism, I mean, in much of the West, you'll find um, a group called Soka Gakkai incredibly involved in dialogue events. But in my local context in Singapore, in fact, the local Buddhists here. Are very um, averse to the soka Gakkai so they won't be allowed into the door the dialogue events. So all of this sort of dynamic uh, sort of takes place again there are, there are class-based aspects of this. There's a fantastic book of this on the Indian context by a man whose name I've forgotten somebody Swami that's not a title it's his name. Um, anyway. But there's, there's, there's a brilliant sort of book um, on this. I it gets discussed in a sort of chapter on sort of sort of dialogue. So, yes, I mean, like much power dynamics, it is often sort of what you're seeing when you're looking at you know, dialogue events. People say, you know, we're here to talk to everybody, but no, they're not. They're there to talk to people who fit, fit your gender.
1: Of course. And just, if I may simply put, there's layers of complexity, I think, (laughs) within even interreligious dialogue as well. But thank you for your uh, (laughs) thorough answer. Um, And Dr. Hajus, I want to thank you so much for your time today to kind of discuss your really landmark achievement that serves a very clear and instructive guide for studying religious communities and traditions in diverse societies. Um, In a way, to kind of conclude um, today's interview, there is a final two-part question I would like to ask you. Um, The first part is, um, because uh, this is such a a comprehensive book and kind of uh, targeted to both uh, students and uh, professors and teachers, um, I wanted to ask you um, kind of hear in person um, your answer, how do you envision this book being used Um, any kind of last tips uh, from the author himself to help our readers in utilizing this book to its full potential if I may put it that way uh, for both our students and our professors Um, if you can answer that first question then I'll um, after you answer that question I'll ask you the second part all
2: right thanks. that's a good (laughs) question I mean I don't want to be prescriptive on this I'm sure there are professors out there who are much better teachers than I am, who will use this book far more <laughs> effectively to, to, than I do. Um, but I mean, having said that, I mean, one reason I've got the 18 chapters in here is to provide, if you like, a lot of leeway, because most courses, if like, if this was taught across sort of one sort of semester or a term, you know, you're often like 10, 12, maybe at most 15 weeks. Yeah. Um, and of course, different people have got different interests. Mm-hmm. So it's partly there, if you like, that, you know, people can pick and choose the bits that are relevant to them and, and their students. Um, of course, I said you could use it across like a whole year, sort of two trimesters with other sort of things thrown in. Right. And a lot of it depends on the level of students that you're doing with. I said currently I'm teaching like a master's course. So like each week we already sort of have one chapter with like a primary reading. So sort of um, I've got chapters like of, of, of Pierre Bordeaux, merleau Ponti which of course you wouldn't show at a first year student Mm -hmm. um, within this. And, you know, some of these chapters, I mean, I have actually taught part of this book as as an undergraduate course as well. Um, And there, you know, sometimes, you know, we'd have sort of two courses a week. I'd use one chapter across two courses. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, it very much sort of depends what it is that your purpose is. At the moment, I'm not teaching religious studies Majors, I said they're very much from our Asian studies like a very much sort of Asian comparative politics and international relations are my main ones So actually the two chapters I start the course off with is chapters 1 and chapters 18. So Mm -hmm. religion and politics Politics. Mm -hmm. So I basically, you know, sort of get them into this idea. I mean partly, you know, there is a There's a colonial sort of background to where we are Mm -hmm. um, in understanding these concepts Mm -hmm. Um, but also sort of showing to be like how religion gets defined in particular sort of context, gets used in particular ways, how it's related to ethno-religious sort of nationalisms. Yeah. So, that you know, the students from these backgrounds can see, aha, uh-huh, you know, I've kind of got a link from this into my other courses,
0: right.
2: which I probably wouldn't do if I was teaching sort of religious studies students. I mean, that might come in sort of later on. Um, and again, I said some things like the cognitive science of religion, I don't currently use because I don't think it's that useful to my students. Mm-hmm. If I was teaching sort of straight religious studies students, I'd probably give them that chapter mm-hmm. um, because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is perhaps sort of essentially, if anything, is I said it's the first three chapters and I said, I've put them into their own section. If you like, this is, if you like sort of foundational, what is religion, what are the methods sort of that we use? And kind of those three chapters sort of do that Mm -hmm. work. Um, And again, other chapters that are key to post-colonialism, one I would say incredibly important today, Um, gender also incredibly important. Um, I actually don't teach the gender chapter because I have another, colleague who runs a comparative sort of religion course and he's got gender sort of in that so basically you know we've split up some of the work Mm. um that happens you know we don't want every time you know always the gender sort of weak again and you know so of course students don't necessarily take both Mm -hmm. but for those who do you know we're not repeating um material but again you know that would sort of come into there but i would say just sort of these three you know think about your students what is it that they need to know are they going to become religious studies sort of majors, in which case, you know, get the religious studies stuff Mm -hmm. in there. And they sort of, you know, is this just like the one course they will sort of ever take alongside anything else? Then maybe show them sort of how this is relevant and they can come back and think about stuff later on. But in in one sense as well, I said one part about this book, it's not a book about religion. It's a book about how we study religion. And so if like, I could almost say the content of this book is irrelevant in terms of religion, but I said, what it does is give them methods and tools for looking at the world, of making sense of societies. Um, and this, you know, can apply to sort of um, cultures, ethnicities, all sorts of things. So, you know, think perhaps about how your students are gonna sort of benefit and what's gonna be their long-term takeaways mm. out of this. And it'll go off and, you know, they can use in their other courses. Yeah. Um, and going this is assuming teaching, if you're just using this book to read, then I would say just, yeah, dip in, chapters that make sense again i said chapters one to three to some extent i said underlie everything else so make sure you have at least sort of read through those but yeah i mean it's, it's not you know it's not a book that's meant to go from chapter one to 18. Mm-hmm. um you know you can use them in any order i said i use sort of uh yeah sort of chapter sort of one and 18 is my first two at the moment um and then i think i'm going to sort of do well actually again to the design for the time i was teaching this chapter of secularism sort of next i don't do that anymore um, but i'm then going back to sort of chapter sort of two onto some sort of the methods i mean there, there's all sorts of ways you can play around um with this depending upon your students background and their context yes
1: wow thank you for that great tip and insight i guess um i think this is another great plus that we have for <laughs> for being a podcast interview um now uh, my final final question would be Uh, what are Uh, you currently working on? And if you can share with us your current and future projects, I think our listeners and our readers will be excited to hear
2: about that. Okay, Um, the simple answer is I'm probably doing too much at the same time, Um, which is (laughs) a flaw we often have. Um, Something I have been working on, in the introduction to the book, I talk about what I call a critical hermeneutical phenomenology which if like is the big picture theory behind this mm-hmm. um, and i'm sort of working out what that book is going to look like mm-hmm. um how i basically sort of like the it's like the meta theory behind this book um which is aimed very much at my sort of it's, it's not a textbook it's aimed at like my, my, my scholarly colleagues to help think through the discipline um so that's something i'm, I'm thinking through um i also, have got a book on uh, actually sort of comparative theology. It's basically about sort of intercultural sort of hermeneutics. So, how we will sort of use, um, if you like, sort of theories of sort of hermeneutics from different traditions. So, I look at different traditions and try and take sort of interlocutors. So, it goes back to the decolonial sort of question. So, when I look at sort of Buddhism, I sort of in location like Nagarjuna with Islam, I look at Ibn Sina, and basically say like these people are not just data for us to study. They're theorists. What are their ideas? How do we build their theories and make this part of how we think sort of through this? Mm-hmm. So I call it comparative theology book. It's more sort of like a permeneutics, kind of like how we think about thinking um, book, um, in a sense. Um, and, and you mentioned dialogue. I have realized, uh, this may sound a very odd thing to say, that I need to write a tetralogy a four volume book about dialogue <laughs> um, because I, I was going to write a single volume book and then when I started thinking about that I thought I can't do this in one volume <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's again that's in the back of my mind and obviously you can't write what's that six books at, at the same time having said that I've got drafts of several things on to go um, somewhere sort of um, in my mind and then as well as paper so yeah I'm I've got some big ambitions, and somewhere eventually, hopefully, one of them will pop out and emerge.
1: Those sound like great projects. Very um, uh, excited um, to read more of your works, uh, the forthcoming works as well. And once again, thank you so much in the midst of your busy schedule to be on this podcast today. Um, And thank you, everyone, um, so much for listening to today's podcast episode, in which we explored understanding religion, theories, and methods for studying religiously diverse societies, written by Paul Hedges and published by University of California Press in 2021. This is your host, Byung Ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on religion.